Uh, welcome this morning as we begin to kick off our, our new series. And welcome to you who are joining us online. We have at least uh, five families right now that show up, so we want to welcome you here. And uh, as we enter this new series, I did want to talk about what it looks like to have faith in God. And so, see if I'll stand this way. But, uh, you know, God, how is it made? You know, we don't get a ton of I used to live in Oregon. We had a lot of clouds. A lot. Um, it's a cloud, but it's on ground level, right? So it's formed a little bit differently uh, than those in the air. A fog formation can occur in two ways. Uh, the air is cooled to the dew point, uh, which forms fog droplets when the temperature is the same as the dew point, or the ground um, surface can evaporate, water can evaporate from the ground into the air, raising the dew point until condensation occurs. And that's how you get fog. And some fog is really thick, and uh, you know, and sometimes you feel like you're walking in a fog. You can't quite see where you're going. That's what this week felt like when we opened up our trailer and everything was gone. Uh, it's like, okay, but I do want to thank Matt and Tammy for helping us get all this set up this morning and uh, using their own equipment and helping us get going. And, and uh, you know, we're right next to the police department now, so I feel a lot better. Uh, and so, but yeah, be praying for those who ever took it. And uh, we'll just pray over that. But as I thought about that, I thought about the fog. Uh, I, I remember living in Oregon, and uh, we moved there when I was in fifth grade through uh, eighth grade, and uh, or fourth grade through eighth grade, I think. And um, I can remember, yeah, the fog just came in and we would drive in it. And I can only tell where we were by looking at the yellow line in the road. But we kept going forward. And occasionally, oh, there's the stop sign or the stop light. And, and uh, in the fall, we had a lot of fog and I played football in eighth grade. And at the time, I weighed about 85 pounds wet. And so they had a hard time getting the pads on me. Even. Uh, you know, you have the hip pads and knee pads and shoulder pads and, you know, and the helmet about tilted me over. It made me off balance. So they put me in it tight end and about once or twice a game they'd throw a little pass to me. I remember uh, one Saturday we were in Albany, Oregon, and it was foggy. I didn't know if we were going to play, but they said, well, you can see about 20 yards and no one on our team could throw the ball that far anyway. Uh, and so they have one play a game or twice that I get to do it, but the coach decided to call it in the first quarter instead of the fourth quarter this time. And they would simply turn around, they'd fake the handoff, and they'd quickly dump it over to the tight end, which is myself. And uh, so I remember on that day they dumped it over to me, and I caught it. And usually when I catch it, I so small, I just caught it, gained a few yards, got tackled right away, and uh, I just kept running. Look, didn't see anyone around me, and I kept running. I hoped I was going in the right direction. I just kept going. And then as I was running, my pants fell down. And so I'm grabbing them here, trying to hold them up, because the tail pad is like pulling them down, because I usually don't move that much on the field. So I'm running with the ball, and I just kept going until I saw a goalpost. And I got there, looked around, and finally there was a referee there handling the ball. That was the first touchdown I ever scored. And half the crowd didn't even know I did it. <laughs> you know, it's like, you, know, you kind of want people to be proud of you. <laughs> and uh, to see what you did, and my team was like, you scored? I thought, yeah. No one showed up around me. So uh, I did it. Um, and yet, 
I don't know, maybe you have felt this year kind of like me. You hope you're running in the right direction, but you can't quite make out where you're headed. You believe you're going there where you need to be, but you're not quite sure. Maybe a little bit. I'm going to cut down to here. This year, I be flexible. Nothing bothers me anymore. It uh, reminds me of my prison ministry days. But uh, um, you know, there's an unease or a lack of clarity when you're in the fog. Even though you may have done the thing a hundred times, you still feel a little bit of doubt. Um, 2020 has been a fog like no other, right? Uh, we simply can't see that far ahead. You don't have a plan too far in advance, and those who did had to cancel their plans, didn't we? Um, there are small shifts and setbacks, and then we, we think we're going in the right direction, the fog is clearing, and it, it sets back in. And it's universal, it's not just in the United States, but everywhere around the world we're experiencing this, right? And so, sometimes, even outside of this year, we have times in our lives where not just this pandemic, but the times where life is coming at you from every angle, where you've been praying and you're not seeing a single answer. You're not feeling God in your life at all. Prayers seem to go unheard. Hope sounds good. Promises look good on paper, but it's just not coming to fruition. And as I thought about that, I thought about the book of Esther. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Esther. You simply find in the middle of the book of Psalm and go to your left two books, or backwards two books, past Job to Esther. So, as we dig into Esther, I'm going to lay today a little bit of a background for us. Um, and as always, I love to lay the background because I remind you that this is going to read like a really good screenplay, but it's not. It's history. It's real people set in history. And whenever I get lost in this, I am going to refer to our youth group, because I know that the girls went through it this summer, so um, we'll, we'll just test you out as we go along. And, oh, Elizabeth, you're front and center. The other two are hiding. Kids is <laughs> uh, over there. So uh, I would like to start just by reading the first nine verses to give you a a picture of the scene we're, we're just being dropped into at the beginning of this book. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, the, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of the reign, he gave a feast. For all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast 
lasting for seven days in the court of the guard of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords, fine linens and purple and silver uh, on rods and marble pillars, also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, a mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was in according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so, as we look at this, this morning, we have a pretty interesting scene set here. Now, in, biblical, in a biblical perspective, um, this is set in the time of the book of Ezra. And so that's a, a, maybe somewhere between 483 and 473 BC. And um, this, you might have heard of this ruler with a different name if you studied in history. His Greek name was Xerxes. Okay? Um, so Xerxes ruled from 46 to 465 BC. And most likely we're informed in, in Ezra that Cyrus let some of the exiles return to Jerusalem in 539 BC. But about 42,360 Jews chose to stay, uh, bringing 7,337 of their servants with them. Uh, and that is recorded in uh, the book of Ezra. Now if we just turn a little bit ahead, we're introduced in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, uh, to two of our main people in this story. And they, they, they are among those who stayed back uh, and continued to be exiled, but they had that, a choice apparently. And so in verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, from whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Judah, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so that sets us up here in the Persian capital, and we have Esther, the cousin of Mordecai, uh, but younger, and he's raising her as a daughter. And so she was orphaned. Um, and life there was survival, hope was frail. History shows us that the Jews were still persecuted, both in small ways each day and in larger ways, as we will see in this book. And in the midst of all this, we're introduced to this king. This king celebrating himself. He's, he's pride-filled. He's on a power trip. He's putting on a, a party to display his own glory and his own gluttony. Uh, if you ever read any of those dystopian books or movies, you see them. It's like Pan Am in that one movie. It's like um, the classic Pilgrim's Progress describes this place called Vanity Fair. It's just a party among parties. And what it's saying here is that the king 
So when the people to enjoy themselves, he removed compulsion. The compulsion was you had to take your drink and you watch. If the king drank, you could take a drink. But if you did so, when the king did not, you could be thrown in jail or killed. And he removed that. Uh, I can imagine it might have been pretty fun to be the king and you know, watch everybody and see if they tilt their drink or not, try and trick them like Simon says. And yet, uh, this was a party amongst parties. Um, and by the end of the seventh day, we're setting the scene where they've been drinking and to excess, day after day after day. Now, recently, I was, I was listening to a book on Audible. And it was talking about the impact of, of alcohol and how alcohol begins uh, near the front of your brain and it begins, they call that, you get a little feeling maybe you're a little less inhibited. But it, the more you drink, it begins to move backwards and cover you up, and, and the author described it as being in a fog. And they call that blackout because people around you think you're still operating normally, but then you don't remember anything that went on. And yet, you're operating like this. That's why we have many horrible things happen whenever we have that kind of excessive binge drinking going on. And that's what was happening here. And I say that because in verses 10 through 22, we begin to see the results of the party. All the men are around the king, and he's real proud of himself. And apparently the queen he had at the time, Vashti, was beautiful. And she was throwing a party for all the women. And he invites her in. And he wants her to come in. He wants to show off his brother. And we know that he had several, probably hundred concubines he could call in at any time. And you only go to the king if he calls you. And he calls her in to parade her around. But much to his shock, she says, no, I'm not coming. Now, one of the things you're going to have to get used to in this book is that we, we have these moral scenes and these decisions being made, but we don't get to tell the motives often or the thinking or the reasoning behind the choices being made. For some of you, that's going to frustrate you. But some uh, jump to a conclusion. They said, well, well, did she do that because she had pride? Or, or was she too drunk? Or we don't know her motivations. So, and she just appears for a moment. If she's the same queen that the history books describe, she was pretty powerful all the time. Uh, and yet we don't know that for sure. All we know is she makes this mistake. And then the king's men rise up around him. And they begin to shout and say, you've got to deal with this publicly, you've got to deal with it harshly, because if you don't, all the women in the world are going to think they have the right to say no. Wouldn't that just be terrible, huh? And it just shows you the state of the world at that time, and how horrible we can be in our sin, and the treatment of women. That's one of the sad pictures in this book that we see. We'll talk more about that next week. And yet, in this pattern that we're going to see develop in here is that the king is quick to listen to whoever's around him. He seems to be easily swayed. And so he quickly takes their advice and he issues the order to get rid of the queen. And she's gone. Out of the picture. Just like that, she appeared and she's out of view for the rest of the book. And so one of the big questions we have in this book is where is God? We don't hear him in this first chapter at all. We don't see him. 
And um, we have to wonder, where is he in the fog of life? What's, what's going on here is that this is a godless place. And we wonder what's going on. And often, you know, we understand that fog is just a part of life. And fog often occurs when we see things going on, evil occurring, bad things happening, and we don't understand how God's going to use it for his glory. We can't see it. And it's frustrating, but it does test our faith. In the first 22 verses of Esther and beyond, it seems that God is absent and evil is winning the day. There's another king who had just as much glory and more wisdom than any king who's ever lived, named Solomon. When he ruled, he said, and he wrote over the book of Ecclesiastes, the excesses he would pursue. He pursued uh, everything, and, and he called it vanity for vanity's sake. He says, nothing satisfied, not the best food, not the best drink, not many women. Unlike Xerxes, Solomon concluded that all there is so whatever else my own desires and my own eyes desired, he said, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. He then declared, everything is vanity. Even though a person sins and gets by with it a hundred times, he says, throughout his long life, I'm convinced that the good life is reserved for the person who fears God, who lives reverently in his presence. And that the evil person will not ultimately experience the good life. And so he's warning us here of a lifestyle like this. It may look good on paper. It may sound good in the moment. But eternally, it doesn't pass the test. And for us, faith in the fog is just a fact of life. Because fog is always going to be here. We're in a sinful world that seeks to fill that void in our life with all kinds of pleasures, just like the people here in this culture did. Celebrating at the capital, and in this instance, the king invited the high and the low into his courtyard to experience the, the fruits of his victories, of his 127 provinces. And yet, uh, today, I want us to understand that even though you're frustrated, your faith is being tested. And before you can even see God at work or see God around you, you've got to remember who God is. And as we look and we remember who God is, that gives us a firm foundation. And you need a firm foundation. And so, I want to read to you from Isaiah 40, 22 to 23. It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. Isn't that amazing? It says the circle of the earth way before the universe was triumphant. Uh, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch out to the heavens like a curtain, and spread them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That is our God. He is far and above everything. He controls all. He knows the princes and kings and principalities. And yet, he is at work even when we don't see him. 
And so it's important for us to recognize here, even this morning, that in the midst of this party, in the midst of this time, that we have a God who is indeed in control. We see that there's a marital spat between two pagan royals, and they end up in, in the wife being banished. And then at the ch beginning of chapter 2, there soon would be a, a decision to replace the queen. And what seemed to be just a, a party, ignoring God, where God's nowhere present, we begin to see the wheels of God begin to turn in action and prepare ahead of time what he needs to have in place. God's providence is already at work. You see, in, the, in this book, you're going to have all the information that you need, but not all the information that you want. That kind of happens in my life sometimes. To remember God's word, I have all the information about him that I need to trust and to follow him in every single circumstance. It doesn't give me exactly what to do, but I know how to conduct myself. I know how to pray. I know who to trust in. But I don't always get all the information I want. And that's why we have to walk by faith when we're in the fog. You see, even this king, who the author goes to great lengths to introduce to us as the all-powerful king in the world, is not outside God's providence. Consider these words uh, by Al Mohler as we walk through this Old Testament book. It says, he says, every single text of Scripture, every single text points to Christ. He is Lord of all. Therefore, he is Lord of the Scriptures, too. He is the, the Lord of all. And from Moses to the prophets, he is the focus of every word of the Bible. Every verse of Scripture finds its ultimate fulfillment in him. And every story in the Bible ends with him. So this morning, as we begin to get this book, I want you to constantly ask the question, where is the gospel in the midst of this book? Where is the gospel in the midst of this book? Mark Deaver um, contends that Esther is one of the longest sustained meditations on sovereignty and the providence of God in the whole of all of Scripture. And I, I would warn us that in this book it's tempting to get caught up in the morality and to sit and to judge the choices. Whether it's the choices of Esther is good or bad, or Mordecai, or, or just sit back and look at how bad this guy is going to be and Haman is, and not take it personally and allow it to penetrate our hearts. We have to remember the sweetest prize of the gospel is not heaven, it's God Himself getting to be with God for eternity. It's because God didn't stay detached from this world. God didn't create the world and then check out and say, whatever happens, happens. I'm going to sit back and watch it unfold. No, he is at work among us, in and through us. And we're going to see this. Romans 8, 28. We know that, all, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, work together for good also means work together for God's glory. Sometimes it's for our good. Not what we want, but what God feels we need. That's a hard part, isn't it? Um, that's a very difficult part of 
walking through this. Because there are times in our life where we do not see God. There are times in our lives when we do not hear God. There are times in our lives when we do not feel God. But he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He has promised that he's going to work things together for our good and for his glory and his purposes. And it's not based on feelings, but on his faithfulness. Because Jesus is a better king. It's amazing that when the sun comes out, it begins to change the atmosphere, and it's not just the sun's presence that lifts the fog, but when the sun is able to heat up the world around it, the fog begins to clear. And when we have more of Jesus shining in our lives, the fog can begin to clear over time. At least we can begin to trust that God is in control. And he is the one that gives our purpose and hope for eternity. And so my encouragement to you this week, as we move ahead, is that we need to trust the Lord. And we need to keep moving forward by faith. One step at a time. Just like that little skinny kid trying to find the end zone, I just kept going forward, hoping I would get there at some point. And keeping my pants up. But... Keep moving forward. Keep obeying and following him in the little things in life. Keep walking forward. Because he's at work. Even in the midst of this passage where he's not even mentioned, he's beginning to work about things and set up for the rescue and the redemption of his people. So let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And you know what, Lord, we we don't always see clearly. We don't know what's going to happen in November, let alone October, let alone the month of September. Um, And yet, each day we can wake up, remember your promises, set our feet on the rock of Christ, get up and move forward, trusting you in the midst of it all. Sometimes we've got to remember where we're standing. We've got to remember what our purpose is. When the world is celebrating and and enjoying life or pursuing pleasures that all end up in vanity, we've got to keep our eyes on you and on the cross and on the empty tomb. And as we walk through Esther, I pray that we would be challenged, Lord, because just like our own lives, sometimes we don't get all the information we give us all the information we need. May we walk in that and trust in you completely. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.